Well, let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, for uh, for this day we give you thanks and uh, be with us and speak and reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to see everybody um, up here chatting with the front row about Les Mis and talking to May May. That that is, if, if we want to go there, we can go there certainly. Um, Spent some time uh, uh, in, in December talking about Les Mis, looking around the room. Lots of folks here um, were in that class and, and had a chance to see the movie. If that's where we want to go, we certainly can. Um, hopefully, this class is going to have a lot of um, of, uh, of time for interaction. That's the way I, I hope for it to be. I designed it to be because um, it's pretty loose on my end. I was thinking about the title, Epiphanies for Every Day. Um, I don't know why I'm telling you all this. You know, because of Christmas and New Year's and the way it all fell out, I had to get this title like middle of December, and I was like, I don't have any idea what I'm going to talk about. So, so anyway, there it is. It's kind of on the prodigal son is where it kind of went. That's where we're headed. So, um, Epiphany. Anybody know what Epiphany is? I mean, Frank preached on it, and, and uh, I have to kind of remind myself what, what, what Epiphany is, what the word means, what we celebrate, et cetera, and so forth. Any comments or any thoughts? told you it's going to be interactive. So. <laughs> Revelation. Revelation, that's right. So, um, uh, who was it? Somebody told me once, and it was a, it was a talk here. Maybe somebody remembers. Um, I've hung on to it every time. It was, a, it was a throwaway. It was an aside. It was a theologian. He said, you know, Revelation, Revelation that's got to be a very important word to a Christian. And he just kept on talking, and I always put that in my pocket, and it's kind of hung on for a long time. And I think he's, he's right. Um it's a very important word as a Christian. So that's one thing I want to sort of put on the table as we're getting here. Why, why would revelation, why would epiphany be such an important word, such an important, an important event for a Christian? So kind of leave that as a question. What else about epiphanies? Um, what is an epiphany? You know, we talk about the epiphany of, of, of Christ to the Gentiles. I mean, that's all sort of church speak. And a lot of folks in this room are, of course, speak church and you know what that means but what what does all that mean like historically or theologically or personally what what does all that mean do you think this is supposed to be the truth and life class you see so it's like where it's the expectation of talk so (laughs) any thoughts yeah michael yeah all the attorneys in the room i mean come on i'm not sure this actually goes to your question but it seems to me there's a distinction between a revelation and Good. Yep. Because the, the revelation is kind of an external event, and something's revealed. The epiphany is kind of the internal event where you actually realize what's going on. Sort of yeah. Distinction between the reveal and the acknowledgement of the reveal. Yeah. Yeah. Because the. Yeah, okay. I'll stop say with that in a comment. I think that's right. Anybody else? I'm going to leap from that to something. Good. Like it's an internal event, it seems. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, like, ah, I think I had an epiphany. You know, we don't usually use that language. Probably say an aha moment, an insight, a realization, um, a come to Jesus moment. Um, what everybody, not everybody, I am into the national championship game like a lot of other people. And, and uh, Nick Saban described the players having a come to Jesus meeting. You know, it's an epiphany. Um, how about that for a stretch? <laughs> um, why is it a big deal in the church? Like scripturally speaking, historically, theologically, why is Epiphany such a big deal? 
the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles. That's how it's sort of phrased uh, in a like a, in a, a church encyclopedia. What, why is that a big deal? The revelation of Christ to the Gentiles. <coughs> Yeah. So it's an unfolding of a mystery, something which was there all along, um, which was not understood, and now it's being it's being understood as if it's being unfolded, and you see a little bit more and a little bit more. I like that. I like that. Thank you very much because it it uh, leaves it open. Like uh, we haven't had a full epiphany yet. We do not yet know even as we are fully known, to stay with Paul's language out of 1 Corinthians 13. But, of course, that's the promise of, of the, uh, the searching love of God in heaven. Um, uh, that's, what, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is really about, the love is patient, love is kind chapter, uh, that one day we shall know God, even as we are fully known by him, the God unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. It'll be flipped and then one day that will be the God that we know fully, um, even the deep things of God. Um, again, to borrow a phrase that Paul uses a couple times in the New Testament. So that's the epiphany that is um, promised but is not yet fully realized. And so all that's kind of here. What, why does it matter? Well, if it's true, it's a big deal. And I guess that's just sort of where we, we have it with some tension. If it's true, that's a really big deal. That's, it's the unfolding of a mystery where in this world we, 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 we see it, but we only see it as in a mirror darkly, as in more specifically, again, in 1 Corinthians 13, like a brass plate, which is what they would use in the mirror. Like if you're an usher, sort of you shine up the, uh, the, the plate that we pass for the, the offering, and you can just barely kind of make out, you know, well, you know, there's a reflection of, of me because I see my white shirt because it's just a bunch of white that's really what it is. You know, we see that well now, but one day we shall see clearly with 2015 vision. Um, we shall see it, you know, with laser focus. Um, if it's true, that, that, that becomes a really big deal. And then approaching that and along these, these small incremental ways, these little ahas and all that are also a, a big deal. Sometimes it's fun to go to... Um, to the uh, to the online dictionaries and the etymology stuff, and I'm, I'm kind of oftentimes I'll start with words there. And there was a good um, place I can't remember which which one this is. Probably Merriam-Webster, mw.com. Uh, the third definition of an epiphany: a sudden intuitive perception, uh, the sudden intuitive perception of, or insight into the reality or essential meaning of something, usually initiated by some simple, homely, or commonplace occurrence or experience. Now, what did that make me think of? House, of course. <laughs> I mean, have y'all watched the TV show House? This is very short. But, I mean, the whole show is built on the premise of House having these epiphanies. And this is, it's not the greatest clip. They really just needed about 20 seconds of it. But it's going to take me that long to go turn the lights off. So we'll just watch the one-minute clip. These are all epiphanies. These insights, yeah, thanks, into and the perception of a... Something that has a lot of meaning from a seemingly simple, commonplace instance. <laughs> I mean, he's it's kind of like David Caruso on a on CSI Miami. You know, he's kind of got a a thing. 
There's really not too much more to this, this little clip. Um, so while it's going, um, it's just to anchor it in that this is an epiphany. And, and hopefully by the end of the class, we'll at least be sort of oriented towards what, what have been my epiphanies. Um, how do I have them? What are they? Are they important? Are they minor? Are they, uh, are they more than that? It's just these, oh yeah, I'm waiting for the left hand. I read this in college in an essay at Suwannee once. Um, that thing that strikes you while you're waiting for the, the light to turn while, while, uh, while you're making a left, uh, a left turn. Um, an epiphany, a realization, an insight, a, uh, uh, a shift, a shift of perception, a whole mood. You know, as a therapist, again, that's, that's big. That's a big part of what I do, it's like depth psychology and all that sort of stuff. So I am kind of into this, the whole epiphany, revelation, insight, understanding, clarity, um, uh, the ability to look backwards and see clearly the way things actually are. That is a, it's a big deal. Goes back to a, with the theologian who I can't remember. One day I'm gonna, somebody's gonna say that was so and so. You know, I've got to think Revelation is a pretty big deal for Christians. Um, so, with house in mind uh, and all that, um, let's read. Um, the, in fact, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, sort of strange that I went here, but. Uh, but thinking about this, and it's just a great parable, one that I like to teach on every few years and I don't think I have in a while. Um, it's, it's a story of several epiphanies. Um, certainly the younger son has an epiphany. Um, uh, the, the, the prodigal son, in other words. The, um, the older son seemingly doesn't. Um, the father, in his own way, has an epiphany. And so we'll kind of look at this and see, see where it wants to go. But interrupt at any point. And ask about lame is if you want to. So um, you can hit those lights again, I guess, if you want. <coughs> so let me get my copy, which I've marked up a little bit. So the parable of the prodigal son, something that's very familiar to all of us. And he said, that was Jesus telling the story. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in, his rec in, in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to, fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything." But when he had come to himself, he said, How many of my father's hand, hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So we'll pause and just look at this part of the parable. Parable of the prodigal son, as it's often called. It's also often sort of renamed, I think more appropriately, the parable of the two lost sons, because it's in the sequence of, um, of the, the lost parables in, in Luke 15, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep, where Jesus leaves the 99 and goes for the one, or he tells the parable of the shepherd who does, the parable of the lost coin, and now it's the parable of, um, of the two lost sons, because both are lost, the older brother and the younger brother, but the prodigal is the one who usually gets the, uh, the, uh, the heat, but also all the glory, because he has the party thrown. It's also called the party parables um, sometimes, because 
there's a party here, um, which the older brother doesn't take a part of, and we'll look at that in a moment. There's a party after the coin is found, and there's a party when the sheep is found, because there's a party in heaven. Um, and so they're called the party parables as well. Indicative of what? Um, well, it tells us a lot of things, just to kind of enter into this, this part. When you read this parable, um, parables like everything, and I'm thinking about doing a series in the summer. I think this is where I'm headed, is towards the parables. I haven't done that in a while. Um, but parables aren't, aren't, aren't fables. And they're not just, I mean, you don't read anything you want into them. They're not like, well, to me, it's kind of, it's not that. I mean, you've got, you've got structure. They've got, they've got a cohesion. You've got the rest of the scripture that it lines up with. Uh, it's the, uh, here, um, for all those reasons I just said, it's the God character, which is the main character, um, more than the human characters that we draw anything from. It's describing who we are and who God is, primarily. The Father. The Father is the, the central character here. What, what is he like? Um, in all of the chapter of Luke 15, we see that the Father is one whose passion, whose purpose is defined and interestingly, to throw a party. <laughs> that's, that's what it's, it's a central sort of raison d'etre, is, uh, is to find and to throw a party. It's a strange way to present that, because here, and I'm relying a lot here on Robert Capon, um, uh, it's also, it's, it's this parable, and this is what's kind of new to me, it's kind of chewing on the last couple of days, it's a, it's a parable with a lot of death. Because right at the beginning, the dad dies. I'm going to show this in a minute. Of course, we see that the son realizes his death when he comes to himself, he so, so to speak. And then, interestingly, the fatted calf dies. And I think that's going to be very important. The only person who lives in this parable is who? The older son. Um, and that's bad news. To be alive in this parable is bad news. To die is the good news. So we go through all this with these, uh, these interesting ways of thinking. And this is all towards an epiphany, by the way. Um, these, uh, these ways that uh, uh, we see the Father in his passion to raise the dead, to find people who themselves are dead, and to throw a party for them. Uh, and the bad news, relatively speaking, of holding on to one's life, like the older brother. So that's where this is headed. So we see all this where... Um, uh, in verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But then he came to himself. Now it's a strange contrast when the when 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 the Bible describes coming to oneself as coming to a realization that the that 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 I'm at my end, or I'm dying at least. He's on this way here. You could read some Valjean into this if we wanted to. But when he came to himself, he said, "How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger." And so what does he do? He kind of develops this little monologue, the soliloquy. He creates this idea. What I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my dad because here I am as a good Jewish boy eating pig food. Now it's like a double strike. You know, that's really, really gross. Um, uh, but I perish here with hunger. I'll go back to my dad and I'll say to him three things. One, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Check. That's, that's correct. I mean, is that right? I've sinned against heaven. That's the first thing. All sins first have the audience of God. Um, uh, not every sin is a sin against another person. Sometimes it's a distant second. I have sinned against heaven and against you. Talking to his father. This is his little soliloquy that he plans. Second full sentence. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Check. True. 
he comes and he reckons with himself when he comes to himself. My, um, this is all an epiphany. Um, uh, an epiphany is he sees himself in the mirror of a pod, uh, of, a, of a pig trough. Uh, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. Realizing his unworthiness, I'm no longer worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table. Um, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Uh, begs the whole idea of sonship because he's now beginning to develop a plan. Since I'm not worthy to be called your son, I'll develop a plan since I'm out of sonship to kind of come into hired handship with you. And so first idea, I've sinned, check. Second, my unworthiness, check. Third, so um, treat me as one of your hired servants. Can't do it. It's a bad plan. That's all it is, is a plan. It's a human plan where he's trying to create, make a, take a bad situation and then make a plan to make a bad situation even worse. And in fact, to make it worse by doing something that's impossible. Because although he's unworthy to... Uh, be called his son, you can't unsun yourself. He can't unsun himself and rehired hand himself. It's a it's 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 a it's a fatal flaw from the beginning. But we see this is his plan, and he's armed with his plan, and he picks up and he goes, and we're gonna see that it doesn't actually work out quite that way. And this is a detail from Rembrandt's painting, which we're gonna look at in just a minute. And so then the youngest son, um, that's the he, and then uh, and he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, while the father was still, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So here we are. Um, he arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a very long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And it's been said several times, and it's worth saying again, the uncharacteristic um, behavior this would be for a uh, a, 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 a a Jewish man with any dignity, and I think we can still kind of catch on to that. You know, it's as if you know my grandfather, uh, who was one of my heroes, um, would have uh, uh, acted very out of character if he would have sort of run to to meet me while I was still a long way off, especially when I'd been doing something so um, uh, uh, so wrong, so sinful. But yet that's, again, the, the mechanism of the epiphany, where he takes up his robes and he, and, he, and he sort of girds his loins, so to speak, and he runs off and he embraces him and he kisses him. And note what the father says to the son. Not a word. It's very interesting. Um, the father in the parable doesn't say a word to the son. Because then the son, he just runs out, he embraces him, and he kisses him. And then the son said to him, Father, and here's, remember his little plan? Three parts, what does he do? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, and now the father speaks, but not to the son, but to his servants, the ones who are around. And so the son had his planned confession, I've sinned, I'm unworthy, make me a hired hand. Poor confession, a poor plan, and makes it into a right confession. Um, 
grace works, you could say, for dead people. Um, obviously, looking at spiritual death here, um, really at the end of myself, that I am dead in my trespasses and sins. My unworthiness and my sinfulness is, uh, is really all that I have, and it's all that I have to confess, to make a statement with my mouth about who I am. Um, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he just stops. And that's where, it's the moment of grace. Well, that's the continuation of the moment of grace. Following um, the embrace and the kiss of the Father, the confession then follows. The moment of grace and then the confession. How often do we get that backwards? You know, we sort of wait, I wait, for, embarrassed to say, shamed to say how I wait for my children to confess their faults before I bless them and say, okay, well now you're back in my good graces, you even hear that word, now you're back with me, and it's just it's, it's wrong. It's a wrong pattern. We don't confess to God and then say, and then God says, okay, now um, I forgive you. Now um, you can have grace just because you've confessed. He, he runs to us, he embraces us, he kisses us. We see things clearly as grace works on dead people. And then I see myself clearly. I have the epiphany. I have the house moment where I see, oh, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And yet, here I am with my nose buried in your chest um, from your loving embrace. It's really, you know, it's since been since so many times, but it's still so right. So he continues, but the father says to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Now it's interesting. What's the father doing? He's, um, he's giving away stuff that's not his. I can't, I can't really figure this out because remember at the beginning, the, uh, the youngest son says there was a um, father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them, the two sons. So he's saying, you know, dad... Just die to me, basically. Give me all that you're going to get, that I'm going to get when you die anyway. And the father says, okay, I'll give you that, and I'll give your son this. So the older son got the farm. The, the, the youngest son got the cash. Um, that's how they divided the assets, and it's what it is. So the father is basically dead. Comes to it, but then he starts giving away the stuff. But the father, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Again, Robert Capon, um, I didn't see this until then. Uh, the one I've never liked about the prodigal son is you can't go the whole way because there's not really the atonement. Um, it's not a full, you can't make, you can't make complete doctrine here. Uh, but then I saw this, the fattened calf, the, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The lamb, the calf, which was set apart from its birth for a singular purpose, um, and that is to uh, to die, to die for another, um, to die for another in celebration of their being found. So here we see again the passion of the Father to find and to throw a party, where it's the fattened calf which has been prepared from the beginning of its time to uh, to die. For the purposes of another. Now, it, it, it goes a long way. It doesn't go the whole way, but it's there, and I never saw it. Um, 
the idea of the uh, the atonement, um, the sacrifice, the movement. And he bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. I think I'll hit pause. Any comments so far before we go to the older brother? What I think is um, the movement of judgment. The bishop um, forgives the thief, Valjean. Um, and remember, Valjean at first, uh, after he forgives it, he spins out, "Who am I? Um, you know, whoever I am, uh, I can't be uh, any more who I once was." And so he runs, and he runs. He tears up his parole. And again, in the movie, that great scene where he's running back and forth in the church. Uh, and then finally he, he breaks out of the church and the camera soars back. It's very sort of Lord of the Rings-ish almost. And you realize he's in this, this, uh, this monastery on top of a mountain. And he takes his yellow paper and he throws it up and it floats up in there. And you hear the descending scales. Da, 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 da. You know, it's going on and on and on. Valjean is, 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 is changed. Absolutely. He's coming to himself like, sorry, pointing the wrong way, like in verse 17. But when he comes to himself, he said... Um, so he's a changed man, but he's not changed fully. In the same way that the son here, I think, is still, he's definitely had an epiphany. But he comes up still with, with two-thirds of the truth. And a half-truth or a two-thirds truth is sometimes much more insidious and harmful than, than no truth at all. Because um, he comes up with this poor plan, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Uh, way that Valjean says, whatever I am, I can't be what I was. And so he runs, and he assumes a pseudonym, the mayor, and he wants to be uh, somebody new. But see, he's actively running from his past, and he won't reckon with who he actually is. Because if I wasn't the man who spent 19 years uh, in doing hard labor, then who did? If I'm not that man, then who am I? Later he sees that I can't be either... Uh, 24601 or Valjean, I'm both. Behold the man, um, Pilate says to Christ, the one who gets both. And I think the son, I think the son sees that. After when? After the father runs out, embraces him, and kisses him. And he drops the plan. And he simply confesses truth. I'm a sinner and I'm no longer worthy to be called yours. And yet, here I am. Because that's, that, that's, the, that's the image. Yet, here I am, with the hands draped around me. Um, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he's saying that in this embrace of the Father. Um, the way that Valjean comes to realize that as well, where he has the... Uh, the, 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 the true epiphany that I'm no longer an either and or. I'm both 24601 and I'm Jean Valjean. I don't need to be the mayor anymore. I don't need to be, uh, I don't need to pretend. Um, this is who I am. Um, and his life is still one that's then hounded and, 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 and dogged by Javert. It's still dogged by, by, uh, by the law, dogged by God. He doesn't have peace yet. Not until the very end. He's still a man who doesn't know total peace, and so he's not, he's not done even then. Because that both-andness 
remains very present at work throughout. And so here's, um, here's the youngest son. That's my play at the beginning. This is, this is seeing things rightly. In the embrace of the Father, confessing my sinfulness and my unworthiness, that though I'm unworthy to be called your son, yet here I am in the embrace of the Father as a son, having the ring, the robe, the shoes, the calf, everything that says this is a, um, I am now an heir to the Father's kingdom. That's the revelation of Christ to us, that we also are heirs to the Father's kingdom. So let's say a little bit about the painting. We're going to look at the whole thing in a minute. Notice the hands. People have read like um, Nowen's little book on, on the prodigal son, the return of the prodigal son. This is Rembrandt's painting. It's a great, great little book. We have it in the store. I do recommend it totally highly. What, what, do, what, do, you, what do you know about the totally highly? How about that? <laughs> Two adverbs. Um, uh, what do you notice about the hands? What's that? One is darker than the other. One's darker than the other. That's right. And it's not just the light, I think. Um, their shape, placement. Often what people see, and this is not me, um, uh, one's feminine and one's masculine. It's the hands of the Father. Um, look at the right hand and the left hand. The Father's right hand is very feminine. Um, uh, longer fingers, even the placement. This is where it's the brilliance of the uh, of the um, of the piece. Uh, it evokes almost for me. I can feel these hands on me, and even the small placement of the hands and the difference of the way that the longer, more effeminate, more um, uh, by feminine, I mean just more female, a motherly embrace, a tenderness. Uh, reaches down just a little bit further as if it's pulling towards. And the, and the other hand, not in any way, all still very positive, the strength of the masculinity, the weatheredness, the shorter but more firm hands, higher up on the, uh, on the, on the, um, on the, the, the shoulder, um, applying a little bit more pressure, saying, I'm here, I've got this. You know, it's that communication of a father to say, you know, don't be afraid. I'm here. It's a masterful, it's a masterful communication. And all of that evokes what? The epiphany of the confession. No, the epiphany and the confession. The epiphany of, it was a stupid plan. I can't, I can't score keep. I can't, I can't go back to a hired sonship, a hired handship. I am a son. Um, and the inclusion of such at once come to me and I've got this. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty pretty powerful communication. So, so to finish this, um, and now his older son was in the field. Uh, and as he came, he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. Remember, the older son got the farm, so to speak, and so he's overseeing everything. And he called one of his servants and he asked what these things meant and the servant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out. The second time the father pursues the passion to find. And his father came out and he entreated him. But he answered his father, look, 
these many years, he's whining. Um, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him and the father. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So to move quickly... um, this is really a picture of hell, uh, where the Father, in sort of a Psalm 139 sense, where shall I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, hell, you are there. The pursuit of the Father. Um, uh, you could even say as part of the, the, the dogma that created the creed that he descended into the dead. Um, uh, the son, the older son, throwing a little fit, he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and he entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. The father went out to the place where the son, the party is going on. All he's got to do is go in. Just have a drink. Loosen the collar. You know, just go. Take off your tie and, and be, be glad. The son, you know, my, your brother, um, is uh, was lost and is found, was dead and is now alive. Um, uh, lighten up a little bit here. Um, but no, he stays in hell. He stays outside. Uh, and, and he doesn't go. Um, it's, it's, if we've talked about hell, I've talked about hell in my classes before, and, and we, it's hard to describe what hell is and what it isn't. Um, it clearly exists. That's what I do know. Um, it has a population. That's what I know. Who's in it? I don't know. God does. Um, what does he do with those in hell? We have a good sense that um, uh, the, the, the only way into or out of hell has to do with Christ. Uh, w- what happens there, we don't know. Um, but here uh, is a picture of hell uh, sitting outside the party but never going in. This is very C.S. Lewis, who had a very fanciful um, but, but powerful idea of hell, of, uh, of standing right outside uh, and refusing to allow an epiphany, refusing to um, see things clearly. So there's a lot to be said about that, but I won't. Um, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have, uh, all that is mine is yours. Um, remember, I gave you the farm. If you, wanted, if you wanted lamb once a week, you could do that. It's yours. You, you know, you're, just, you're just pitching a fit. You're not seeing things right. Um, it's a parable of judgment. Because this is me. I don't see things correctly. God's saying, look, you, you could have done this. But uh, whether it's my own will or just whatever other reasons, I, I, I don't see it. Um, as I immerse myself in a scripture like this um, for the 10,000th time, I still see it. I see it again, fresh and anew. It's the house moment of an epiphany where suddenly I've stared at this paper as he you know, looks at you know this disease for for a week and a half and suddenly he sees it because you know whatever um that's the way the scripture works that's the way it works for me anyway so comments or thoughts yeah i was going to say we could we could go to javert again because he couldn't receive an epiphany that's right he was you know when valjean gave him back his life didn't cut his throat um, but he couldn't receive that. Yeah, I won't take this. Yeah. 
And so it becomes the the Javert question, um, like the older brother question. Um, A slave to the law. A slave to to scorekeeping. You know, know, I did all this for so many years. I I didn't cuss. I didn't drink. I didn't fool around. He's out there doing it with prostitutes and all this. You know, and it's like, whatever he did, you know, he... It's done now, and he's here. Um, and it's exactly like Javert, um, where uh, the rigidity of his schema, which was then uh, completely confounded, what then? But, as I said in the class, um, and we don't know, because what an abrupt ending. Um, he doesn't give the, he doesn't make it a bad ending or a good ending for the older son, does it? It just stops. It just stops. We have no ending for the older son. We don't know what happens. We do have a little bit more with, with Javert um, of, uh, of sort of how he was cracked. Um, I put a lot of grace in that cracking. Um, uh, sort of like a good man is hard to find with Flannery O'Connor where the, the woman uh, gets the epiphany at the very end. If anybody uh, knows that story. Should, somebody know that story? Never mind. We'll talk about that later. I know I have before, but... Very similar to, to uh, the grandmother, I think she is, in, in that short story by O'Connor. Um, she gets her epiphany at the very end. And as soon as she does, bang, bang, bang! Shoots her three times in the chest. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> um, anyway, here's, um, here's Rembrandt's painting. Uh, I know it's time to go. He's got one shoe on, one shoe off. Bald, the embrace of the father, uh, are seeing things aright, dropping off the third part of his supposed confession, uh, and now making the two parts of his real confession so that grace happens to him as he knows himself as a dead person who has now been made alive. And then there's four people you can barely see up here. Um, sometimes another thing, there's a, in, in the great distance, there's somebody looking in, it's the four observers that uh, is usually talked about here. This is, of course, the older brother who's on a raised platform, assuming the position of superiority with the criticalness of it all. Um, Rembrandt kind of added that in. The older brother, of course, never goes in in the, in the parable, but, you know, puts him in here, assuming that. And then there's the, uh, the, the one who's seated with his hands kind of open and his legs akimbo, and he's kind of indifferent, not really looking at anything. It's usually assumed that we're one of these four observers, or there's the one who's kind of back... Um, hiding from a wall, you can see that voice in the doesn't come out very well here, but you can see it's an archway, kind of curious, but able to sort of duck out at the last minute if it gets if it gets too too vulnerable, you know, cuts to the quick too much. And then there's one in the darkness that's just very much in the distance, kind of watching. Um, and so oftentimes, in a sort of meditative or devotional sort of way, people will say, "Which which are you? Um, which observer are you?" observing this critically, like, damn it, it's, it's not fair. <laughs> you know, it's not fair. Um, indifferently, with, uh, with curiosity, with fear, um, or sometimes just having the, the moment of embrace with the two hands of tenderness and absolute sovereignty. It's a great piece. Let me pray. Lord, take this, uh, these feeble words, and carry them in your, on your word, uh, bearing fruit, I pray. Allow um, revelation to occur in Jesus' name. Amen.